Well, Philippians 4, talking this morning about choices that produce peace. I don't know where you were at this week in the course of your life, the course of your Christian journey, uh, and you probably came here uh, with various different things going on in the midst of your life, and, and you have said to yourself probably at many different times, why, just, why can't I have peace? Peace of mind, peace in my soul, peace in my marriage, peace in my home, peace in my relationships, peace in the church. You could, you could list a whole number of situations where the longing of the Christian's heart becomes, dear God, please help give us peace. This was such a common uh, this was com- such a common idiom in the, lang- in, in, the, in the understanding of the Jewish culture. They would often begin and say goodbye with saying things like shalom because they desired a level of peace that was far beyond what they humanly understood was even possible. It was embedded within that culture and our understanding. And this morning, as we think about this together, I really want us to focus in on this idea that we'll... That we'll continue to unpack in this text. And last week we talked about this. Christian, a Christian community has the desire to help each other live at peace. Now this week we're going to move in to this main idea, that Christians seeking to live at peace can actually experience the peace of God which passes all understanding. Now as we start here, just tuck this away in your mind. It is there for you to have if you want it. This is not something that he's trying to withhold from you. This is not something that only a select group of ultra-mature Christians get to experience, and then the rest of us have to look on like, man, what are they doing that I'm not doing? This is something for your soul, for my soul, for us as a church, for us in our relationships, that we can have a peace that passes all human understanding and human experience if we go about doing the things that will pursue those elements, if we choose various things. Now, what he wants to unfold and unpack in the course of our study this morning is is marks of a Christian who desire the peace of God. So if you're saying to me, as I have said to myself this week, that's what I want. I want the peace of God that passes all understanding. Well, then the question becomes, what is it going to take? What choices must I take? And what, what choices will I have to make in my own Christian walk to say, that's where I'm going to find peace? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, notice in the text the very first component that we're going to talk about, Mark number one, rejoicing. This is not an altogether new theme. Notice in, in, uh, in verse number four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Very common, very un, this is very non-complex. If I would say to you as Christians, rejoice. You say, you'd probably think, well, some of us are, some of us aren't, some of us are in between, some of us are in the process of. But the call is an imperative, it's a command. It's not something is a result of, it's something that's a choice to make. And this is not uncommon in the sense of, uh, of Philippians chapter 3, we would remind ourselves when, when he talked about this at a, at a previous state, he says, I want you, in, in Philippians 3, 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's the joy found in? The glory of Christ. So mark this in your own mind. Well, if you're supposed to rejoice, and now he says, and again I'm going to say it. Now, he, why does he say things twice? <laughs> I mean, in your own personal study, I think you have to understand that oftentimes in the Greek language, and every time in every language, by the way, when you want to say something and really put an emphasis on it, you say it again. And so that's what he does. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and again, I say rejoice, because I think the reality is, is that we often lose and many things hijack a level of rejoicing that ought to be occurring in the course of our life. If we said, what are we supposed to do in order, we, in order that we might experience the peace of God? Or uh, we know that, to rejoice. When are we supposed to do that? Now, this is the hard thing. At all times. Don't you read that 
and say, like, come on, can't there be some, like, exception where I have a reason not to rejoice? I mean, we're always kind of looking for the loopholes of, like, yes, that's good now, but what about my circumstance? I see this a lot as I care for people. They want to altogether believe that their circumstances are unique in and of themselves when they are exactly common to all of us. The context or the outworkings of those struggles may be different for sure, but the command to rejoice at all times applies to every and all situations. He's very deliberate. Now, what do we rejoice over? He says rejoice in the Lord. Notice this rejoicing, and when he says, again, I say rejoice, he's saying, you know what, we have to, we have to deliberately choose at moments of our life that are most difficult to find a deeper level of joy. And that's the rejoicing he's talking about. You might even ask, as one commentator so put it, he says, how can we truly rejoice when we remember all of our past sins? We remember, we remember the person that we once were, the choices we once made, the arguments we had, the disunifying person that we had become. How do we deal with this in our minds and continue to rejoice when loved ones are suffering and someone's in the hospital with an illness that is incurable? How then can a Christian rejoice when in various parts of the world persecution exists and Christians are being killed and martyred for their faith? facing possible death. How do we do it then? It is the moment that your choice of rejoicing has to really be heavy on the in the Lord part. Because the rejoicing side of it alone is not some, he is not calling you as a Christian or me as a Christian to come any, any day of my life before the throne of God and conjure up some level of emotion as if I could stand here as some, you know, enthusiastic person to lead you to say, now come on, let's do this, rejoice. Like you, like right now, you rejoice. We can't just conjure it up like that. We can't give that kind of, Christian encouragement, for example, when somebody's in the throes of suffering and pain and illness and struggle, we say, you know, well, it, your faith seems to be lacking, so, you know, you, you really should be rejoicing in this. Like, timing means everything, doesn't it? I've watched and heard Christians at various different times of, uh, in others' lives as they're in pain say, Things like that, some trivial component of what the scripture says, but all at the wrong time. Rejoicing instead of helping them realize where they're at in the Lord. And why that struggle to rejoice is so great. This is not some emotional stirring. That is not what the apostle is trying to say to the Philippian believers. He's not saying this, well, I know you got a bunch of Judaizers and false teachers at times, and you got Yodi and Syntyche kind of squabbling inside the church. You know, just let's rise above it. Just rejoice, everyone. It's not going to happen. It's some emotional conjuring. Then what is rejoicing then? Rejoicing happens as a result of being in the Lord. And when you say, and again I say, rejoice, well, he's saying, that means you really got to understand that the rejoicing is a result of your in the Lord. That's where we often go wrong. This is why we often struggle, because we, we don't see that our external, external circumstances cannot dictate the position of the heart. See, your faith, if it is anything like a Christian should be, they have to dig deep into the soul of their, of their relationship with God and say, you know what, whatever's happening out here in my life that I cannot control, here is one thing that I can do. I can control what my heart meditates on. I can begin to control how my heart begins to be a thankful person. I can allow that to choose a rejoicing spirit. Why? Because the rejoicing spirit is not bound up in you and it's not bound up in your circumstances. It's bound up in God. And when it's bound up in God, it can never be moved. It can never be changed. 
It's always stable. It's the single most stable factor of the Christian life is God who has now revealed himself and indwelt the believer so that he then can reach to the deepest reservoirs of his heart and he can see that God is there working in his life, in your life, in the life of the body. It can't be just a feeling. Rejoicing in the Lord is, a, is an aspect that occurs as a choice of deep confidence in your life in the God of heaven who does all things. Isn't this why Romans 8, 28, when we think about it and we think about the stability of the Christian life and how it's found and how a person thinks about God. Here's part of the problem for us many times as Christians is we think so much about ourselves and our circumstances and think so little about God that we get so wrapped up in what we would like to see happen and when it should happen and how it should happen that we forget that God is the sovereign ruler of all things. And when he wants to see it happen, he'll reveal it. This is a God who cares. This is why Paul recognizes this in Romans 8, 28. And we know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This becomes really hard when we have events most often that are outside of our control. This becomes difficult when we take our eyes off the living God and all of a sudden we begin to place our joy and our aspirations and our contentment and our satisfaction in things that are out there in the world. See, there is something going on in the world and Satan is so uh, deceptive in the way that he brings us to the Christian life to say, wait, if I just show them a little bit of this, they'll, they'll stop thinking a little bit about, less about God and more about finding joy in that. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just found joy in earthly stuff? Like for the longest time, uh, I, I remember like, because I grew up in a generation where like phones went from like this to like this. And it was, because I was kind of a geek and I loved taking apart computers and I loved all this kind of stuff, there was always this element in my mind that every time that that whole cellular plan like upgrade happened, it's like I couldn't wait for it to occur. There was a level where I would even long for it. I would be there looking on eBay trying to figure out where can I get this sooner than somebody else so that I walk out with something and pick it up and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa look at that. It sounds so stupid, doesn't it? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Your pastor was stupid. At that moment, for various points, at that time, you, you almost give up a joy in God thinking that some minor earthly thing would bring you some level of, of deep satisfaction, and it never happens. It doesn't matter if it's a car or a house. It doesn't matter if, uh, you know, whatever it is that you fill in that blank with, I will tell you this, that if you try to find joy in some place other than God, you will always be left wanting. You will always be left wanting. This happens so often in the course of, of, of individuals' lives as they experience various hardships and traumas and circumstances out of which they had no control over. If you've ever watched a person who's so discouraged and so depressed where they couldn't even come out of the house that looking at a picture plagued their mind as they saw themselves smiling, thinking to themselves as they rehearsed that picture, Oh, I remember they would say to themselves, I was happy at one point in my life. Where have those days gone? And I long for them again. They'll walk by pictures in their room and they'll see themselves and they'll just be in greater amounts of despair. Oh, is it just a simple solution for us to come by and say, well, get out of that, stop being that way, and just rejoice? <laughs> Oh, I wish it was that easy to conjure up a level of deep-seated emotions. But what happens is, is when we don't spend time 
filling the well of our soul with the contents of the attributes and the things of God, when we look to rejoice in the Lord, we reach into that well, we lower the bucket in the deepest, darkest hours of our life, and it comes up dry. And we've got nothing. Because we haven't spent our lives thinking and meditating and hoping in the Lord. And that, friends, is where you find some of the deepest despair is because it's outside of that where a person begins to think, what have I done? I have nothing without God. You know what that, the Bible calls that? Hopelessness. When you get to a point as a Christian where you believe that you don't have any hope, the despair and discouragement escalates through the roof. And your challenges become so overwhelming. And then when some Christian, you read a passage like this, and it says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. You just look at it and go, yeah, right. That's not possible. Friends, it's possible. I've watched some of the deepest, darkest, despairing moments of people's lives turn into joy in the Lord. Was it easy? No. Was it hard? Yes. Did they have to take time to spend and take thoughts captive and meditate on the word and be with other believers and help them walk through these dark moments? Yes. But little by little, they continued to fill that well with the understanding and the, and the revelation of God. And the more they saw God for who he was and understood his sovereignty, they, they looked less for fixes on the external circumstance and said, God, you are in control. And I can rejoice over the fact that I'm not, the, I'm not trying to be the sovereign of the universe. There's only one of those, and it's you. Rejoicing in the Lord is challenging. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Holiness of God, I think it's very interesting. He says, he asks this question, he says, were we, if we were able to extract from any man or woman com uh, the complete answer to this question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man or that woman. Because your view of God and your theology of God is everything to you because you live out that theology each and every day. If God isn't in control, then who is? If God is not kind, then what is the measurement of kindness? If God is not love, then how do we even understand love? If God is not a God of peace, then where could we ever go to find a place of peace that passes all understanding. Oh, this is the heartbeat of the psalmist in Psalm 1 when he says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night, and he's like a tree that's planted by streams of living water whose roots just keep going down deep. Do you know what causes those roots to go down deep? Your theology of God. It is the theology of God that anchors the soul, that anchors us into when storms come, when trials come. It was modeled by the, by the, by the New Testament church. You think in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when the, when, the, when the people of God were, were experiencing hardship and suffering, and they left in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, then they left the presence of the council after they had been persecuted, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I mean, what a remarkable ability. They dug in to the deepest reservoirs of their hearts or Asaph in Psalm 31, where all of a sudden you get to this glorious passage where he's trying to say these various things. He bookends this psalm and says, God is good to Israel and those who call upon him. He says it at the beginning, at the end. And he says, but for me, I almost slipped. And at the very, at the very middle part of it, he says these remarkable words when he realizes the end of those who, were, who, were, who he thought were prospering but would come to ruin. And he says, as he reflects on his own soul, Psalm 73, 25 to 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart, they might fail. Oh, but God, you are my portion. Forever. He's never going away from you, Christian. The Philippians 1, 6, that he began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Get this, that's where peace comes from, and if he sustains it and sustains you, then the peace that passes all understanding is possible for you. Because it's not about you, it's about him. The more we wrap our minds around that, we realize that rejoicing is possible because we have the knowledge and understanding and the revelation of God. No one else gets that unless they embrace the Bible as God's written revelation. Yes, I understand why it is, why things get ramped up in a culture like ours, and there are so many despairing components. If you watch the news and talk to people, you will realize that people today are struggling handling all kinds of fears, anxiety, discouragement, illnesses, and the way that they respond to it. Do you realize that 30 to 40 years ago, whether or not even if it was the right religion, that the culture, even of the West, had, a, had an idea of the divine. Atheism was, is, is not some long-standing disposition. It's a rather new idea in the sense of culture to say there is no God. Most of history would help us recognize that people, they may have not served the right God, they might have served a false god, but they believed a god existed. And when they came into hard times, they would always look to the divine. But as, you has a, as we have a culture that dissipates in its understanding of not only an idea of religion, which is most of what you have in many denominations, is an idea of religiosity, rules and regulations, they're not teaching a relationship with God. And when you don't teach a relationship with God that comes through the repentance and faith that you trust in Jesus Christ to save your soul, you don't have any ability to rejoice. And when you're at that point, everything is in despair. I couldn't imagine, I don't even fully grasp it in my own mind, how do unbelievers do it without God? Because when the hardship comes and the difficulties come, it's, I don't know about you, but fairly quickly I'm finding myself going, God, please help me. God, would you please help me to be patient? God, would you give me the wisdom to understand this? God, would you please strengthen me to be able to, to deal and handle with the things that you have called me to do? God, help me to represent you rightly. That there is a level that we reach into as a Christian that is supposed to mark us and move us towards peace. Rejoicing is one of them. Here's the second one. Mark number two that you can choose that moves you towards peace. We'll find it in the very next verse. He says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, this is somewhat of a challenge when we think about how we, how we work through uh, dealing with conflict. Now, don't erase from your mind, this is a good hermeneutical principle, by the way, as we think about this and coming back to uh, the idea of what it means to be reasonable. Now, we just came from a passage in, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where you had this internal struggle between the Odeon and Syntyche. Many times we think, oh, Paul has made a break from that, and I would argue, contextually speaking, that sometimes we say he's made a break from that and now he's on to get us to rejoicing. But can I just argue this morning that this flows out of a conflict, an internal struggle in which he says rejoicing is part of the solution. He's not saying, no, we're not dealing with conflict anymore. He's saying rejoicing in what you have in common. What is that these two ladies had in common? Their names were written in the book of life. You know, here's what happens in conflict. You start to look at another, uh, the other person who you're struggling with. Do you, do, I mean, are you, is your first response, even as a Christian to another Christian, like, oh, God, thank you for them. Like, they're refining me in ways that I could have not known I needed. I needed them to pick a fight with me. No, we don't say that. 
But God uses even conflict to reveal what's going on in the desires of our own soul, and the mark of the Christian is to be a reasonable person. The challenge with the word, as you go back to the original language, is the, is the reality that there is so much packed into this word that no single English word does it justice. And you often find that at various occasions as you're studying the Bible. And some translate this uh, as we see it in the text in the ESV. Let your reasonableness be known. Another translation will say something like big-heartedness. Another one will say something like graciousness or kind-hearted or, or forbearance. It's trying to encompass all of these realities into this one term. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's very interesting that the way that this word is described, it is also a command to you and me. You are called not only to rejoice that then helps lead to peace, that this is my brother or sister in Christ, even if there's a struggle, you are called to rejoice even if external circumstances seem to want to pull you away from it, but you're also called to be reasonable. It is a past tense with a passive perspective. Now here's what, here's what it's trying to convey. This is where I think it helps us is that when we live in the present, we make decisions knowing that someone is going to say, they're, going to, they're watching how we, how we make decisions, how reasonable we really are, how forbearing, how kind-hearted we are, and they look back and say, in passive, was that reasonable? You don't have somebody going, no, I am the most reasonable person ever. No, what we have here is, when you make a decision, you want to be thinking, if someone else was to interpret the, the circumstances and the context surrounding all the things that have transpired, they would say, man, they're, they're so forbearing. They're so gentle. They're so, they have such a gentle reasonableness. Do you realize that sometimes even within the course of Christian life and Christian community, or even within Christian marriage, Christian friendships, Christian families will say to each other, you are being so unreasonable. And maybe you're that one. That's why you don't think that very much about it. But the reality is you are called to sustain as a mark and desire for peace a gentle reasonableness. And it shouldn't just stop at saying, oh, I really want people to think that way about me or think about this context this way. Why is this important? Because it's a reflection of our disposition about God. Reasonableness is something that we, as we look at it, he says, let your reasonableness known, be known to everyone. Okay, so let's make it really, really simple. There is not a single person in this room who should not be a gently reasonable individual. There is not a person within the membership at the chapel who should not be a person who is approachable because they could look back at the marks of their life and say, I'm just going to go talk to them <laughs> because they're reasonable and they're gentle. Now, you and I both know that doesn't always exist. And when it doesn't exist... It prohibits us from dealing with one another because that, mar that, that situation comes up and what do you do in your mind? Oh, I know what you do because I do it too. You go, oh, how much does it mean to me? Should I just leave it? Maybe we could just kind of sweep it under the rug. Maybe we just, yeah, it's okay. I, and we'll say this, I don't really want to get in a fight. See, if you're a gentle, reasonable person who's seeking after peace, who's rejoicing in God, there shouldn't be a problem. But the problem is that in our hearts sometimes we fight for what we believe is just. And this idea of, of, of being unreasonable often ends up in a disposition of anger because when I don't believe that the just thing occurred, then I have to help make justice reign. And we get frustrated. Guess what? Our reasonableness being known to everyone 
doesn't just stop on Sunday when we're here together, does it? It's supposed to be known to our community. That means if you're a worker in a business or a business owner and someone who's out or you're a college student or you're a high school student and you're in the high school and, or, or whatever it is or, or you're homeschooled and your siblings are, are watching you, your reasonableness should extend to all of these areas so that all of a sudden we don't meet somebody who's part of the chapel and then you meet somebody that they know you have a mutual acquaintance and they go, oh, you know so-and-so? Oh, man, they are not kind at work. And you're just thinking the whole time, like, oh, they're such a great person. Do you realize that people can fake it? Do you realize that sometimes who you see on a Sunday morning is not who they are through Monday through Saturday? That can occur. Our reasonableness should be shown to everyone in the community so that they say, wow, those are gentle people who love to care for other people. Well, guess what? This is a mark for Christian leadership. If you're an elder, a deacon, or any kind of position of leadership on any level, I mean, think about 1 Timothy 3.3. Here's the qualification of an elder. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. We ought to take that seriously. We can't be people who all of a sudden, like, I'm in for a good squabble every now and then. It just you know, spices up life a little bit. Nobody does that. Your reasonableness should be shown. Same thing is said of the deacon. Well, think about uh, Titus 3, verse 2. Christians are called to this. He says, speak evil to no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all people. What about servants and employees? 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good but and not, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. James even says it in this kind of way in James 3.17. But wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Notice how the knowledge of God immediately impacts the gentleness of the believer. See, if all of a sudden we, the only perspective we have of God is that God is this righteous, domineering, dictatorial judge who's always going to say, I'm going to bring the hammer down, you emphasize an attribute without letting it be balanced with who he is in, in, in his whole total person. Now he's a God of wrath instead of a God of wrath that's mitigated by his love. He is a God of perfect love. This reasonableness is so important for us because we'll never be able to resolve problems in our relationships, in the body, in our families, in our communities if we aren't known for the, the gentle reasonableness that this calls us to. Why is this so important? Because if we choose rejoicing, if we choose a reasonable disposition, understanding all of these things, then we will be a, a, a person who experiences a level of peace that passes all understanding. He doesn't just stop there. He gives us another mark. Not just rejoicing, not just reasonableness, but now resting. Now he says it in this way. He puts it in the negative, He's, and he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And let me make a statement, just a short one, about this issue of the Lord is near. One of the challenges of this statement that most, that most theologians are struggling with is, 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 is a couplefold. One, does it refer to the previous statement and phrase, or does it refer to the statement after it, which is don't be anxious, or does it refer to both back and forward? <laughs> and once you figure that out, you've got to figure out, well, what does he mean by near? Is this near chronologically? A chronological nearness would make us interpret it that the Lord is coming soon. He is that near. A spatial sense is God's presence is close to us. Okay, there's, there's flexibility in a sense where you can maybe land, different theologians land on different sides of this. I tend to land on the spatial side. Knowing that the knowledge of God presents an imminency in a way that God is not, he's not, he's so transcendent, but he's not so far from us. He's near to us in all of our struggles because it doesn't make sense in my mind to say, don't be anxious 
because it's all going to be over soon. And then we just start to, we start to go, come on, just maybe today you'll come back and then I don't have to deal with this. And then maybe today you'll come back and I won't have to deal with that. As if it's the motivation just to relieve me from the problems that I have. But nearness of God displays this idea that when I'm anxious, when I struggle with fear and discouragement and anxiety, that I have a God who is close to me. He knows my pain. He knows my circumstances. He's so close that I can depend on him. And the more I depend and understand who he is, what happens? I begin to be rejoicing. I begin to be reasonable. And then I don't let the anxiety begin to control me. There are so many times that various things of concern in our life are important. Here's what he's not saying. In the Bible, all through the course, and we'll come back to this at a later time, but the idea of don't be anxious. There's a good concern, and then there's a concern gone rogue. That's sinful anxiety. When you are over-concerned with things that you don't have to be over-concerned with. For example, let's just put an illustration on this. Just for a parental standpoint, perhaps you have been there. When your kids first start driving and they get out and they take that first few drives by themselves. And I remember my mom saying to me something like, call me when you get there. Why? She wants the peace. She wants a peace that knows I'm okay. Now I've tried to mitigate that a little bit in my own parental guidance by Life 360. Because now I can just watch their little car figure and they're like, they're almost there, my heart's in peace, I like this. But the reality is, is that peace with God and my anxiety that comes as a result of me not knowing what might occur, and then what do I do? In my mind, I start thinking, I don't think they're there yet. Hey, their little, their little car stopped moving. Are they stalled on the side of the road? I can't get a hold of them. What do I do here? And we just unravel. Ever felt like that? And sometimes it has nothing to do with whether your kids are getting from point A to point B, but sometimes it has to do with your marriage, has to do with relationships, a friendship, a possibility of marriage, and the list could go on and on and on, and we say, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? He says, we can't be anxious. Why? Because if we're sinful, if we're, if we're sinning and not trusting, anxiety is how he describes it. Don't be anxious about anything. Let me just, I, I think there's a level of connection that the Lord is so near to us that we don't have to try to solve everything that's going on or have to see every end of every circumstance so that then we can have peace. Peace is found in trusting when you don't know what's going to happen. And that's part of how even hope is described in Hebrews 11. We put our hope in things that we haven't seen the end of. And yet, in our own hearts, do you not, when you think about heaven and what you will experience there, doesn't it give you a sense of peace? Like, I'm going, he told me, I'm secured in him, and one day I'm going to be there forever with him. My heart is at peace no matter what. This is why, by the way, Christians who are going through various components of illness and suffering and cancer, that you can go time and time again and you can go to the hospital to them and you will hear the, the staff, the doctors and the nurses say, about a Christian that you would know, they would say, there is something different about the way this person is handling the situation that I have ever seen. Oh, it warms my soul to know people who are going through suffering in a way where their dependence is on God because the Lord is near. He's close within presence. This resting is a, we can say there's a good concern, but when that concern goes rogue and all of a sudden says, what if, what if, Guess what? Are you ever going to have peace until your what if is answered? <laughs> you won't. You'll just ask again in a different way, in a different context. But what, what Paul is saying is you don't have to choose that. In fact, he gives it to us as a command. Don't be anxious. Now, this is the rub. About anything! <laughs> now, swallow that. <laughs> Isn't that hard? I mean, well-intended brothers and sisters will look at other people who are struggling with anxiety and panic and all these kinds of things, and they'll just be like, 
stop it. Like, come on, like, do you think they wouldn't, like, they didn't try that already? (laughs) That is so hard to hear those words. Just stop it. (laughs) Christians, we can do better than stop it. We can ask questions about where they're at and where, where has this drawn their spiritual life? What is God challenging them to think about? Where is, their, where is their God who is near to them? They have forgotten, perhaps, how near God is to them, the truths that God has revealed to them. Where do they think God is trying to grow them? It is often through levels of fear and anxiety that God flushes out of the heart various components of where we still struggle to trust in him. And Christian, he is doing that for me on a regular basis. He is having to flush these things out of my heart that I cannot see, and sometimes I get discouraged, and sometimes I get anxious until I have to go back and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Where is my theology so that I can rejoice and that I can find peace in you? And I'll tell you what, it works. It works. Because the more time I spend with God, which is exactly why he moves right into the next mark, resting and requesting. Have you noticed they kind of go hand in hand? He says this, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is this prayer? What is this, this idea of dependence on God? Here it is. He's saying prayer. What is that for the Christian? The reverence and respect and genuine devotion that says, God, I'm not in control. (laughs) What if, say, well, I can control some things. If I just had this, then I'd have peace. A theology, a right theology of God says, I've got to go to the place where where I find my God who is sovereign, who's good, who's kind, who knows all things, and I can be devoted in prayer. This is part of the antidote to anxiety, by the way. It's interesting to me that over the years, as I've, as I've helped people with various components of anxiety, is that the greater amount of anxiety that a person experiences, how often, how little prayer, uh, their exp- prayer they're experiencing. There is often correlation between the two. That doesn't mean that they're not praying at all. But haven't you ever had moments in your life where you struggle praying well? Where you pray prayers like, God, just take it away. God, take it away. Please take it away. Instead of saying, God, if that's your will, but until you decide to do that, help me learn who you are in the midst of my hardship. Reveal yourself to me through the pages of your, of your word. Prayer is the act of reverence and genuine devotion. What do we, does he, he allows us to bring supplications, our needs before him. Here is a God who is so near to you, he wants to hear from you, Christian. He wants to hear from me. But we often take very little time to devote to prayer, both personally and on other occasions within the body, so that we cast all our cares on him. Why? Because he, our theology no, understood He cares for us. With what kind of attitude? With thanksgiving. He says, you pray, requesting these, you go in devotion and prayer, trusting in God, and then you you ask your need with the thanksgiving. What's the thanksgiving? It's the attitude and the disposition that says, God, I'm going to be thankful whatever the outcome is. Because that you control. And if, if you do that, then Lord, I trust you. This attitude of humble dependence and submission to God. Well, I'll tell you what, that breeds unity. When you have somebody in the body who's struggling with anxiety and panic and fear and all of these kinds of things, we as believers should be helping, coming alongside, praying with, searching searching the scriptures together, saying, what is it that God wants us to teach? Shouldering the weights, bearing burdens together. Let me make a shameless plug for small groups that are coming up. You need to get in one. Because these are where the body comes in contact with suffering people. We're not just here together on one hour or two hour basis. This is an opportunity for you to pray and bear burdens and live together in unity where your gentle reasonableness can be known. 
and your rejoicing together can be fervent and your theology of God will deepen your faith. Oh, we have a lot to look forward to that's coming up in September, so put it in the back of your mind. It's not the only time I'm going to make a shameless plug about that. Uh, I would just encourage you. Don't be saying to yourself, oh, but I don't have time. If you don't have time to rejoice with other people, you don't have other time to let your reasonableness be shown, like, this is a great way for you to help forge your Christian walk with other people. I love what one particular theologian said when it came to prayer. He said, uh, he said this statement. He says, prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven and can find no acceptance with God. Because the heart that humbly depends on God says, whatever your will, that's what I want done. Can you say that, Christian? If you choose rejoicing, reasonableness, if you allow yourself to not be anxious because you recognize the presence of God, you choose that, you choose to go to the Lord in prayer, trust in him with a thankful spirit, knowing he's the one who controls it. And no matter the outcome, you can say, Lord, your will be done. If you can do all those things and your theology is overflowing in that way, guess what you will have? You will have the very thing that you long for. He says, with, when your requests are being made known to God, verse 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that you long for is attainable as you continue to choose to have the right theology, the right heart attitude, and you can choose to have the right response. And out of these choices culminate in this peace of God experience. It's not, for the believer, it's not whether I have peace with God. Jesus made it possible for me to have peace with God by his own son's sacrifice, by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, where wrath, I, I was deserving of wrath, and now he, his son took it for me. And just because of that reality of what Jesus would, would do for us, that we can have the peace of God. It rests upon the soul of the believer, and it surpasses all understanding. And what he's trying to get at is all human comprehension. And we could just simply state it by saying that we, other people will see this and go, how can you be at peace when, and then you fill in the blank, your loved one just became with a terminal illness, or this person passed away and you can't change it. A child is wayward in your home and yet your heart is at peace. It's at peace with God. It's not peace of the fact that your child is is not doing what's right, but you trust that God cares for them far more than you could ever care. And that all of a sudden, what the, what the world sees about Christian people is they know how to depend on God, whose soul is stable, rejoicing in him, the most reasonable people you will ever meet, who aren't conflicted by some instability of anxiety in their own soul, but they go to the God in heaven who brings stability once again. And I know that's hard to take those thoughts captive, but it's possible with the God of heaven. He says, and this peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts. It will guard you. And he's not trying to make a distinction between heart and mind. He's saying, it'll guard all of you. That's what he's saying. It's going to guard your mind so that when you're tempted to think, is God in control? You'll say, my theology says, no, he is in control. Is my God kind? Is he good? Is he gracious? That you're, you would have a disposition where you say, no, I've been resting in this God. He has not changed. Therefore, I can go to him to rejoice, and I can go to him in my anxieties, and I can trust him that he will come to my, to my aid. Christian, never forget that your theology of God produces a certain kind of life that will be healthy one that's often beyond human comprehension. It connects us with the reality that our God is near to us. I would just ask you a few questions as we close. How are you developing that theology that will help you obey that command? Are you in the Word of God? Because it's in the Word of God where you get 
the understanding of who God is should be a regular diet for your life because that theology is what's going to deepen your ability to rejoice. When you don't have a full sense of who this God is, you'll have a harder time rejoicing in the God who you don't even know. Take some time to be there. Are you known for being reasonable, a gentle, forbearing person? Husband, wife, it wouldn't be the first time that I heard in a, at a time in a counseling session, they're so unreasonable. Are you a gentle, reasonable person who can be approached because you love God and you're going to help them rejoice in God? Or are they going to go away from your conversations going, I'm just not going to talk to them anymore? Because it's worse than if, I, than if I just leave it alone. Be a gentle, reasonable, forbearing person. How are you choosing to respond to your own personal anxieties? This is a tough one. All of us have them. Things that get us bent out of shape of an over-concern turns into panic, fear, all kinds of things. How well are you doing at taking those thoughts captive and allowing other Christians to come alongside you to take those thoughts captive and submit them to the Word of God and develop and build that theology so that you run to Him in prayer, which is the act of dependence on God. Christian, I think this is a challenge for all of us. How well are we praying? How much time are we going to take in our Christian disciplines to pray? To bring our supplications before the God of heaven who can do something. And one last one. What do you think is keeping you from that peace of God? No external circumstance can take that away from you. You can have the peace of God that passes all understanding as you develop those Christian disciplines to rejoice, be reasonable with other people, or all of a sudden you're not being anxious and you're bringing your request before God, the peace of God you can experience. It is, it is there for the taking. It's not something he's withholding from you. Christian, go after it. The more you go after it, the more deepened relationship you will have with the God of heaven. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us Lord, as we continue to grow in our acts of dependence on you, that it would grow into Christian disciplines that flow from a heart of thanksgiving and a theology that knows you, has a good understanding of who you are. Lord, we need your help with that. We're so thankful that the Spirit of God resides within us so that you can continue to grow us in our walk with you. In your name we pray, amen.